If you want to take your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel uh, again today. If you weren't here last week, so we're jumping into a sermon series in 1 Samuel. And just to give a quick recap of the background of this book, we don't know a lot about the background of this book. We don't know who the author is. We don't know exactly when it was written. We know it was written sometime between the end of Solomon's reign and when Jesus was born. <laughs> um, probably sometime around the, the exile into Babylon is when it was written. Uh, it's probably an author who's compiling from various sources as he's pulling this book together. Uh, the Talmud suggests that maybe Samuel wrote it, but Samuel dies in 1 Samuel 25, so we know after that point he's not writing anymore. Um, probably some of his written records were used in the compilation of this book. Um, the, the books of First and Second Samuel were originally one book, and they focus on three main characters. Samuel, who was the last judge of Israel and whose name gets given to the books. Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And then David, who was the second king but was the great king of Israel. That's the three main characters as we look at First Samuel. And then Second Samuel focuses almost exclusively on David. We're, we're p- planning to cover 1 Samuel over the course of roughly seven months, and there's 31 chapters. Now, I, I don't remember if I pointed this out last week or not, but we just spent two years in the 21 chapters of John, so we're going to have to move a little faster than we did through John. And kind of the analogy that uh, I would use for this is we aren't going to get down and walk through all of the bushes and look at every flower and every plant as we walk through first. Samuel, uh, because then we would be here for years and years and years. Uh, There wouldn't necessarily be anything wrong with that, but I have other books I want to get to than just for Samuel. But we're also not flying a plane where we're going to take a couple weeks and just see the whole lay of the land and no details. It's kind of going to be something in between, like driving down the interstate, where occasionally you pull off and you look at the scenic overlook and notice some details, but you're also moving fast enough that you get a feel for how everything moves and connects together. So, for example, of of how that's going to work this morning, we'll spend more time looking at the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and then we'll kind of speed up as we cover the final 26 verses of the chapter. So Samuel's story begins in chapter 1. Samuel, this first big character of of 1 Samuel, his story begins in chapter 1 with the story of his mother and her prayer for a son. And she promises... God. She's so desperate for a son, she promises that if God were to give her a son, she would dedicate him to the Lord. She would give him back to God. And the chapter, chapter one, ends with her fulfilling that vow. God has given her a son, he's blessed her, and she brings him back to the the temple, the tabernacle complex at Shiloh, and he, he is presented there to the Lord. And what we get in chapter two is Hannah's prayer to the Lord at that point. And her prayer breaks into three sections. And the verses 1 through 3, it's kind of the focus is her personal salvation experience from the Lord, what God has done for her. In verses 4 through 8, she takes those lessons that she's learned from her own life and probably from her knowledge of Israel's history and looks at how Yahweh works in the world generally. And then in verses 9 and 10, we see a focus on what he's going to do in the future. So let's just read those first 10 verses of 1 Samuel 2, it says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies 
because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So as we said, Hannah begins in verse 1 talking about her experience with God. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She begins with her experience of God's salvation. And it's, it's easy to talk about how God works in big, broad terms, but that becomes personal for us became personal for Hannah when she herself experienced God's provision for her, when she herself experienced God doing this great work for her, this woman who was barren for years and years and years and pleads with God for a son. He gives her the son, and she's experienced the blessing of God personally. And in verse 1, when it says, My horn is exalted for the Lord, that was a way of speaking about her strength. Her, her horn is, is speaking of her strength, and she's saying it's lifted up by God. She, she has been lifted up by God, and this causes her to see that there is none like the Lord, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. To be holy is to be set apart. And she's saying, God, you are totally different than all the other gods, the gods who don't actually have power. You do have power. There is no rock. There is no security, safety, salvation like our God. And because of that, verse 3 no human being, just like it said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, no human being should be arrogant. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And then we see her kind of transition here to talking about how Yahweh, how the Lord works in the world. She moves from her personal experience, and, and we have to remember, she's someone who's coming with her husband every year to the temple, to, to the tabernacle in Shiloh, and so she probably has a good knowledge of Israel's history, how God has worked in the past. So she's taking these two things together, her experience and her knowledge of how God has worked in the past, to see that the way that God has helped her is an example of how God normally works in the world. He, he's not done something unusual in helping this barren woman, in helping this woman who, who the world, who even her husband wasn't listening carefully to, like, his response to her weeping is, well, aren't I better than ten sons? 
well, come on. And and the, the priest who sees her praying and thinks, well, she must be drunk. Like these people don't listen to her, but God listens to her. And God is the one who it's typical of him to see the weak and the lowly and to listen. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. So those who who felt like they were self-sufficient and could take care of themselves, they're having to go get a real job (laughs) because they can't feed themselves anymore. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. He, he pays particular attention, God does, to those who are needy. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. God, God's way of working in the world cuts against what what might be thought of as like a typical American idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps religion. Like God, God is not out to help those who help themselves. God helps those who know they can't help themselves and turn to him for their help. God, God helps those who understand that they are destitute. John Calvin, the, the famous reformer after the death of his wife, He wrote to his friend, William Farrell, May the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction, which would certainly have overcome me. Had had not he who raises up the prostrate, prostrate like fallen on their face before him, strengthens the weak and refreshes the weary, stretched out, stretched forth his hand from heaven to help me. I, I would have, he's saying I would have been crushed by this pain had not God reached forth from heaven to help me. You might notice in verse 5, as we read through, the, the, the phrase that, that she who was barren has borne seven children. If you look over in verse 21, how many children God actually gives Hannah, if you count Samuel, she only gets six. So we can see that she's not talking specifically about her own experience when she's got to verse 7. She's talking about the fact that, that God has taken this this woman, this barren woman, and he's brought her fulfillment. Seven is this ideal number in the Old Testament, and, and God has taken her who felt like she had nothing, and he's given her everything she needs. Whatever the particular number of children given to her, God completes her and fills up her desire with an ideal number. In verses 9 and 10, We see how God is going to continue to work in the world. It says he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In the end, we see that faithfulness to God pays off. Now that's, as we're going to see in this chapter, that's not something we always see actually happening in the world around us, is it? The, the wicked being cut off 
and the righteous or the faithful prevailing. We can look around at the world and we can say, well, it sure looks like the wicked are winning, God. It sure looks like wickedness is what has power in this world. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that, that the whole world, everybody lies under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, Satan. So, so how is it that, that God is, is going to bring this about? Well, while he at times shows that, and we're going to see an example of how he at times pierces through and judges the wicked and rewards the righteous, God is often working in a much slower way than we want him to work. He, he's often allowing these things to go on for a time, but in the end, he will fully and finally punish all evil and reward those who follow him, who trust in him. The adversaries of the Lord will, in the end, be dashed to pieces as God exalts the horn of his anointed ruler, the coming king. Now, when Hannah's writing, remember she's writing in the, or speaking, she's praying, in the time of the judges. There is no king yet in Israel. And yet she's looking forward to a time when God will anoint a king, when God will anoint a Messiah to come and save the people. And that gets fulfilled in, in the shorter term, right? The, the immediate sense when David comes some decades after this and, and is anointed as the king. And, and the people of Israel have peace around them and righteousness has much more sway in the land than it did at, at her time. But ultimately, that gets fulfilled when Christ comes, and, and he is the king of righteousness. And even then, like we still have, even though we have forgiveness through Christ, and we can have personal forgiveness, and God looks at us as righteous, the experience of a world where righteousness reigns, that's still in the future even for us. But God will judge the world, and he will one day establish righteousness. Like we said, this is, this is an eschatological promise. This is something that's out in the future. One day, it will be the rule of all the earth. The prophets predict such a time. Jesus and Paul in the New Testament predict such a time. But it also bursts into the time and space that we live in. And we're about to see that unfold in the rest of this chapter. So as we move through the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 2, what we're going to look at is two types of servant. We're going to see a contrasting kind of a back and forth swing between two different types of servant. The, the rest of this chapter shows a contrast. The Hebrew word na'ar is used throughout this passage, and it's translated in various ways. That, that word has a pretty flexible meaning. It can mean boy, it can mean servant, it can mean young man, and... And so it gets translated all these different ways in the passage. But I think it's purposefully used over and over to show us a contrast between two types of servant or two types of young man. There are the faithless and worthless Na'ar, the sons of Eli, who are headed towards being crushed by God. And an increasingly faithful Na'ar, Samuel, who is growing in favor both with God and with man. So first, let's look at Eli's sons. Verse 12, we see the, the fact that they are worthless. It specifically says so in the text. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. And then we're told where they're worth the, the center of their worthlessness, where it comes from. They did not know the Lord. 
And then we're going to see how they acted because they did not know the Lord. The first is a series of what we might call liturgical sins, sins of worship. We'll read those in verses 13 through 17. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up to the priest, he would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, then you may take as much as you wish. He would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So probably what's being talked about here is is like a praise offering, a sacrifice. And there's two distinct actions of the priests shown in this passage. In verses 13 and 14, when there's a a sacrifice that's boiling in the pot, they're coming and they're taking their fork and they're sticking it in there and yanking out whatever they want. And then in verses 15 and 16, it talks about when another priest or when another uh, sacrifice is being offered and it's burning, they're coming and they're taking it raw before the fat burns off. Now, there's different interpretations of this passage. Some people think that the first thing is just, well, this is just what they did and that's okay. And then the second part is the bad part where they're taking it before the fat's burned off. But I think... Actually, both of these are, are things that they aren't supposed to be doing. Uh, that if, if we're right in assuming that this praise offering is what's being offered in verses 13 and 14, Leviticus 7 provides for the fact that they are they're given a portion before, before it goes to be cooked. Like there's a certain amount that the, the priests are, are to get and then the rest is supposed to be offered. Well, what these guys are doing is taking the portion that they were already given, and then what's being offered, they're taking that too. They're they're double dipping into the sacrifice for their off for their for their food. And then verse 15, the other reason I think this is talking about two things they're doing that are wrong. Verse 15 says, moreover, like if as if that wasn't bad enough, they're doing this too. And the other thing that they're doing is the fat that was supposed to be burned off as an offering to God. They're saying, well, but that's the yummy part. <laughs> so let's let's get it while it's still raw so that when we cook it, we're not eating disgusting boiled meat. We're eating nice marbled meat. These young men, Hophni and Phinehas, they, they do not see their role as priests, those who minister to God on behalf of the people, as something to be taken with seriousness and reverence. Instead, what they're doing is they're using their position of power to leverage for personal gain. They are seeking to use their office for their own advantage. That's specifically what God's rebuke says in verse 29. Uh, A prophet is speaking to Eli, and we'll look at this more in a minute, but He says, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me, sons, the ones who are doing this, 
by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. The choicest parts, the best parts, were supposed to be offered to God, and God provided abundantly for the priests out of the rest of the offerings. And yet they're saying, well, but we want the best parts. And we know that they are literally fattening themselves off of this because in a couple chapters when Eli dies, it's because he's so fat that when he fell over, he broke his neck. Like, they are fattening themselves off of the people of Israel and their offerings, their sacrifices. This is not not a group of men who are looking at their religious duty and saying, boy, we want to honor God and we want to serve this people well. The, The religious leaders are just leveraging their power for personal gain. And this sort of self-seeking is seen in verse 17 as contempt for God. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the young men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The other types of sins that we see from them are what we might call moral sins. Sins of of their life, it's still tied to, to the worship. Verse 22 and following says, Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Notice how that's phrased. To all of Israel. They're doing this with the, in association with their office. And God speaks as if they're doing it to the people. It's not just affecting them. And how they lay with the women who were, at the serv- who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he, Eli, says to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So these young men, they're not only making a farce out of worship, they're also making a farce out of their role as God's men, quote-unquote. They're sleeping with the young women who serve at the temple complex, acting as if they were Canaanites who had cult prostitutes at their temples. They're acting like the Canaanites around them instead of acting like God's people. Their worship is false and their lives are false. And how how discouraging it is when even those who are supposed to represent God, pastors, priests, heads of Christian universities, are exposed in the perversity of their sin. Uh, Imagine being an Israelite in that day. You couldn't even offer your praise offering without being harassed by a wicked priest. If only that were harder for us to imagine today. But is God silent on this? Will God allow this perversity to continue forever? Verse 25, obviously not. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God determines to judge these young men in their sin. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, become, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so we see following these sins that are laid out, God's judgment on their sins, beginning in verse 27. A man of God, an unnamed prophet, comes to Eli and he says to him, Thus says the Lord, 
Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when you were when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. So to kind of summarize that, this man of God comes to Eli with a sobering message and he says, you have been complicit in the sins of your sons. Though I chose you to be my priestly family, verses 27 and 28, that's a list of rhetorical questions to which the expected answer is, yes, God did do those things. You've rejected your role by fattening yourselves off my people and I am going to cut you off. The only person, verse 33 says, who is left in your house is going to be left so that he can weep his eyes out over the rest of you being dead. And the two sons, the two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they will die on the same day. We'll see that in chapter 4 when they do die on the same day. And it says in verse 35 that they're going to be replaced by a faithful priest. Big question over who the faithful priest is. It's probably not Samuel. Um doesn't seem like, based on the genealogy we get of Samuel in the first chapter, that he is of a priestly family. He might be a Levitical family, so he's, you know, it makes sense that he would be ministering here in the in the tabernacle. Probably the priest that is talking about is Zadok in First Kings chapter two. This, uh, I think, it's a grandson of of Eli, maybe a nephew. Somebody of Eli's family is who was serving as the co-high priest is killed and is replaced by Zadok. Uh, Like I said, we see that in 1 Kings chapter 2. And Samuel ends up serving more as a prophet and a judge. But but the, the moral here with these young men is that God will not be mocked. The sins of Eli's house were great, and though it seemed for a time, a very long time, Eli lives to be a very, very old man, and so his sons are probably not young when their judgment finally comes. They could easily be in their 60s or their 70s when their judgment comes. It it seemed like God wasn't going to do anything. Judgment was coming. 
it's it's worth observing that God's time frame is not the same as our time frame. The people of Israel doubtless would have preferred God to have moved towards justice and given them a good priest a little faster than they did than he did. But he was at work and he was raising up a faithful man. And the faithful man that we see in this chapter, though he's not a priest, he is the, the faithful replacement for Eli as a judge. And that's faithful Samuel. Note that before we ever hear about Eli's sons, we get, we get one verse on Samuel in verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, that, that Na'ar, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So we see him there. Then we get the list of Eli's son's sins with the worship. And then between that and the list of their, their moral sins, sleeping with, with the women at the entrance to the, to the tabernacle, in between, in verses 18 to 21, we see Samuel again. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So again, we see Samuel, and he's ministering before the Lord, and he grew in the presence of the Lord, verse 21, and just kind of a side notes put in there that that the continued faithfulness of, of Hannah and Elkanah, God rewards by giving them more children. He, he gives, gives her three more sons and two daughters. And then finally, before we hear the rebuke that, that Eli gets in verses 27 to 36, again, slid in between Eli rebuking his sons and God rebuking Eli is a note on Samuel in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. All through this chapter, the sins of Eli's sons are multiplied and compounded. Their liturgical sins, their moral sins, their hard-heartedness. And yet we find Samuel over and over again ministering, serving, growing in favor with God and man. It's like these are two lines in a graph that are headed in the exact opposite directions. Eli's son's stock is heading straight down, and Samuel's keeps going up and up and up and up. Again, we're reminded of Hannah's prayer. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For God, the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, verse 9, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So we should read this chapter and take a few lessons. First, we should be warned of the consequences of wickedness. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23 tells us, is death. And that is exactly what Eli and his sons are facing here. And we should also continue to see Hannah as a model for prayer and for faith. 
Last week we saw her praying. She, she turned to Yahweh because she was desperate. And, and, to, and she also turned to him because in her desperation she knew that the Lord would hear her. And today we see her turning to him, overflowing in praise for his character and his works. And we should see Samuel as a model of growing faithfulness. Even even though the influences around Samuel were not good, right? He's growing up with Eli and around Eli's sons. They are a train wreck, and yet he is faithful to the Lord. But before we finish, I think we should make one final point. We don't just have models of good and bad behavior in this chapter, we have a haunting question that that Eli asks, actually, in verse 25. In verse 25, he says, If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, we know, we know Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so it's easy for us to sit here at our at our spot in history and look back at Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and that whole train wreck of a family and say, wow, what bad guys. And they were bad guys. But Paul says that we're all implicated in the same kinds of sins. You, I, are just as deserving of condemnation as they were. Have you ever misused your power in a relationship, maybe as a, a parent? I catch myself doing this all the time. Perhaps with your spouse or at work. It's, re- it's really easy to find ourselves manipulating people in situations for no reason other than our own personal gain and convenience. Or perhaps you've been guilty of lust. And Jesus puts that in pa- on par in Matthew 5 with what these guys are doing here at the temple where they're physically committing adultery, Jesus says, if you look at someone who's not your spouse with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. We, just like these men, have a deep need for forgiveness, or else we're going to face the justice of God. We need a faithful priest to represent us to God. Note there verse 26. The phrase that's used. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Does that ring any bells for you? Like a, a familiar statement. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 52. It's interesting that, that Jesus has been standing here in the temple And his mom and his dad come back to find him. Like, where is he? He's at the temple. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus came, and he came as our sin bearer, right? Uh, Chapter 2, verse 10, where he talks about the anointed of the Lord, the ultimate anointed of the Lord, the Messiah that was coming and is promised in 2 Samuel 7 to David, is Jesus. He came to be the king. He came to be the savior. He's also the one who ministers on our behalf. He, he, he died a death so that our sins could be paid for. 
He also serves now as our faithful high priest, the faithful priest ultimately promised in verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Well, who's the only perfectly faithful priest ever? It's Jesus. Hebrews makes that absolutely clear to us. He's the one who stands before the Father for us today. In Hebrews chapter 7, I just want to read verses 20 through 28. Second half of verse 20 says, For those who formerly became priests and were made such without an oath, but this one who was made a priest with an oath by one who said to him, The Lord has sworn forever and will not change his mind, You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that he should ha- that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which became later which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus came and he was the perfect sacrifice, verse 27 tells us, once for all when he offered up himself. So that those of us who are sinful, those of us who have offended God, and that's all of us who deserve God's just judgment, can be forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. And not only did he make a once-for-all sacrifice, but verse 25 tells us he always lives, he continues living to make intercession for his people. For those who trust on Jesus Christ, they have a priest who is faithfully ministering to them forever. We, we, could, we could look at 1 Samuel 2 and see, like, here's a good example and here's a bad example, but the problem with just doing that, that's there. And we need to learn from that. But if we count on our own ability to gut out faithfulness, we're just going to fail. We're going to end up a lot more like the guys who are not well pictured in that passage than like Samuel. We can only obey God through the empowering of his Holy Spirit who's given to those who have fled to Christ for refuge. The same God who was at work in the time of the judges in Israel, moving to judge sin and bring forward a faithful servant, has brought forward the perfect servant in the person of his son. Jesus has absorbed our sin, and he now ministers to the Father on our behalf as the perfect and faithful priest who understands our every weakness and understands our every need. Lean yourself wholly on Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you again for your son. We are so desperately in need of a savior and so desperately in need of someone to represent us to you. And Christ has done that perfectly. And he's not just representing us to you. He's given us his own righteousness.
He's clothed us in his righteousness. Oh, what a gift, Father. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.